This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. you spectacular people welcome to this 291st episode of the history ghost bump podcast ghost tours for the theater of the mind i am your host diane that's a hint as to what we're going to be covering on this episode it's another location that i've actually visited and that's Jackson Square in New Orleans. This is a beautiful little park in the French Quarter. And the French Quarter is basically just a bunch of buildings, so it's a nice little reprieve from all of the buildings. And the whole area here is surrounded by a bunch of historic buildings, many of which have ghost tales to go with them. And I'll be sharing that with you in just a moment. Before we get into that, we have some people to welcome into the Spooktacular crew. That's Caitlin, who spells her name K-A-I-T. Colt, Cindy with a Y. Jamie with an IE, Ryan, and Gary. Welcome, everybody. And now, this moment, Naughty. The moment Naughty was suggested by Jim Featherstone. Times Beach was a town founded in 1925 near St. Louis, Missouri. I say was because this town was abandoned in 1983. Before the residents had to flee for their lives, Times Beach had a population of 2,000. Its origin story is rather unique as its founding and growth were tied to a promotion by the St. Louis Star-Times newspaper. The purchase of a lot in this town included a six-month subscription to the newspaper. The wealthy of Missouri use this as a summer residence area, hence the beach part of the name. Eventually through the years, the town became home for the lower middle class, but it was a popular destination along Route 66. The roads in the town were mostly dirt and created a bunch of dust, so in 1971, Russell Bliss was hired to oil the streets. But he sprayed more than just oil on those streets. Northeastern Pharmaceutical and Chemical Company Incorporated had asked a company called IPC to discard toxic waste for them, and they hired Bliss to do that. Hmm, he must have thought, where could I put this toxic waste? His answer was to mix it with the oil he was spraying on the roads in Times Beach. That toxic waste contained high levels of dioxin. Eventually, the scandal was uncovered and the government sued in 1980. Some people left and a flood in December 1982 caused an evacuation of the town. The people were told to not come back because of the dioxin, but one elderly couple refused to leave. The town stood as an eerie abandoned ghost town for years and was demolished in 1992. A full cleanup followed and that toxic abandoned town is now a state park 
that celebrates the famous Route 66, and that certainly is odd. Well, you clearly like ghost stories. Check out the new podcast, We Need to Talk About Ghosts, with me, Kevin Eustace. Search We Need to Talk About Ghosts wherever you download your podcasts. And now, this month in history. In the month of February, on the 6th in 1971, Alan Shepard hits golf balls on the moon. Shepard had become the first man in space in 1961, and this was his return trip aboard Apollo 14, which had launched on January 31st. This mission followed the nearly catastrophic Apollo 13 mission. The Apollo 14 was the third mission to land on the moon. Shepard had to rig himself a golf club using a head he brought with him and attaching it to a sample collector handle that resembled a fancy butterfly net used for collecting rocks. Shepard told viewers, Houston, while you're looking that up, you might recognize what I have in my hand is the handle for the contingency sample return. It just so happens to have a genuine six iron on the bottom of it. In my left hand, I have a little white pellet that's familiar to millions of Americans. I'll drop it down. Unfortunately, the suit is so stiff I can't do this with two hands, but I'm going to try a little sand trap shot here. It was hard swinging in the spacesuits, but Shepard managed to connect and send the golf balls flying because of the moon's lower gravitational force. The balls flew at least 200 yards. The Apollo 14 astronauts did get back to their task of exploring the lunar surface, and they collected 100 pounds of rocks before returning home February 9th. A fun fact about that rock collecting is that Earth's oldest rock was found on the surface of the moon. The astronauts at the time didn't know that, but recent research found this to be the case, and the theory is that the rock ended up on the moon after an impact billions of years ago launched it all the way to the moon. New Orleans is an amazing city. I visited it twice, and I can't wait to go back again. There's just so much to explore there with not only your eyes, but also with your ears and, of course, your mouth. I'm not going to throw in the nose because there's some sense in especially the French Quarter that you really don't want to experience. Jackson Square is a magnet for visitors to New Orleans. Centuries of history are represented in this square, and this history includes shipping, trade, an artist colony, pirates, war, and executions. The beautiful St. Louis Cathedral is a popular subject for photographers, and Café du Monde is a must-stop for some world-famous beignets. New Orleans is considered one of the most haunted cities in the world, so it should come as no surprise that this iconic area of this historic city is home to many ghost stories. Join me as I explore the history and hauntings of Jackson Square. the things I need to point out right off the get-go is if you've never been to the French Quarter and you want to go there with your dog, just realize this isn't a real dog-friendly area. 
And it's not because the people aren't real friendly. It's the layout of the land. There literally is no grass anywhere. And we found that out the hard way when we visited. The one area that does have grass, of course, is Jackson Square because it's this park. But guess what? Dogs aren't allowed in the park because they have a bunch of stray cats that live there. And they want to make those stray cats feel comfortable so your dog can't come into the park. So just keep that in mind if you are going to visit the French Quarter with your dog. The square is on the Mississippi River on Decatur Street between the Jack's Brewery Shopping Mall and the French Market and bordered by key buildings like the St. Louis Cathedral, Café du Monde, Muriel's, the Cabildo, and leading off into Pirate's Alley. Jackson Square was not always known by that name. Long before Andrew Jackson became a war hero during the Battle of New Orleans, this area was called Place des Armes. When Louis H. Pilet, a landscape architect from France, designed the layout of New Orleans in 1721, he centered it with this one-block common open market area that originally overlooked the Mississippi River's port across Decatur Street. Because the Mississippi River is right here, this location was perfect for shipping and commerce. It was also perfect as a military parade ground that was used by both the French and Spanish, of course, depending on which country had control of the colonial administration at the time. The square became even more of a central hub with the addition of the St. Louis Church. This church is what would become St. Louis Cathedral after it was rebuilt following the Great New Orleans Fire of 1788 and the governor's mansion known as the Cabildo. So the seat of government and a church were here. So this is why this has become such a central location there. And since I've mentioned the Great New Orleans Fire of 1788, I want to explain a little bit about why that caused such devastation. It almost wiped out the entire French Quarter because most of it was built from wood at first. The reason why this fire was able to get so out of control, not only because we have a bunch of timber for it to catch fire with and to burn through, but it happened on Good Friday. And there was a rule in the city that you could not ring the bells on Good Friday, no matter what. And it got started by a really stupid thing. There's this guy, he's named Don Vincent Jose Nunez. He was the military treasurer for Louisiana, and he'd made himself a little personal prayer area. And he had the windows open near this little prayer area that he had, and he'd lit some candles. And, well, of course, with the window, he had some curtains. And with open windows, you have wind, and then you have these billowing curtains. And, yeah, let's have those near candles. Lo and behold, they catch fire. And the minute those things lit up, the whole house lights up, and it was engulfed very quickly. They said within seconds. He barely escaped with his life. He ran all the way down to Jackson Square, and he rushed into the church and asked the priest to ring the bells so they could tell the community there's a fire. And the church that he ran into, of course, was the Church of St. Louis before it was the cathedral. In the time that it had taken him to run down to the church, the time had changed to midnight, meaning that it was Good Friday. And so the priest said, sorry, we can't do that. Well, then maybe one of them went out and looked to see how bad the fire was getting. And they're like, you know, this isn't just some little fire. This is getting really bad. They had another issue. The bells had been tied down to prevent them from accidentally ringing because the wind was blowing that night. You know, the billowing curtains that caught fire. <laughs> so they didn't want the bells to accidentally ring because of the wind. So they were tied down. So they had to get them untied and then get them started ringing. By the time they got this all done, it was way too late. The wind swiftly carried the fire through the entire colony, and four-fifths of New Orleans was destroyed. 856 buildings in all. And there was a lot of lives lost as well. Now, I want to go back to talking about 
the Place de Arms, or Jackson Square as it was originally known, it became the scene of the Louisiana Purchase. As I mentioned, there was this building known as the Governor's Mansion. It would be known later as the Cabildo. And it was here in the Cabildo that the territory land deal was signed in 1803. And it gave the United States 827,000 square miles of land stretching from the Mississippi River to the Rocky Mountains. It basically doubled the size of the United States with just that agreement. The Cabildo would later become City Hall and be used for court cases. And one of those court cases would be Plessy versus Ferguson. And for those of you that are unfamiliar with that, that was the case that decided that blacks were equal but separate. So it was not a good ruling, obviously. Since Plaza de Arms was a public meeting area, it makes sense that public executions would be hosted here. And a lot of people who probably go into beautiful Jackson Square don't know that this used to be a place where they held executions. They were conducted here throughout the 18th and 19th centuries. The German Coast Uprising was the largest slave revolt in America, and it took place in 1811. Following that, three slaves were hanged at the square, and the heads of several of the rebels were put up on the city's gates. The Battle of New Orleans took place on January 8, 1815, and was a huge American victory over the British, with Brevet Major General Andrew Jackson leading the American forces. A woman named Michaela Almonesta Pontalba was a baroness who was the wealthiest woman in New Orleans. And she would lobby for and finance a redesign of Plaza de Arms after the Battle of New Orleans into what it is today, with that iron fence, gardens, benches, and walkways, and a new name in honor of Andrew Jackson. So that's where it gets the name Jackson Square is from Andrew Jackson. Obviously, he's going to go on to become a president, and he's also going to go on to do a despicable thing to the Native Americans of America, and the Trail of Tears will be a result of some of his actions. There's also a statue of Andrew Jackson that is in the middle of the park. I want to take you down a rabbit hole with me for just a moment. I want to talk a little bit about the Baroness Pontalba. She has an interesting story behind her. Hello? Hello? Yes, I'm down here in the rabbit hole and I've brought you with me. Her father had become very wealthy working with real estate in New Orleans. When her father died, her mother married her off to a prominent cousin who gave her the Baroness title. His family was only interested in her money and got her to sign papers giving her husband control of all her financial dealings. He was a horrible man, mistreated her, abused her. She eventually wanted a divorce, and she fought for separation in 1834, and this enraged her father-in-law. His way of handling it was to grab a pair of dueling pistols, and he shot her point-blank at the family chateau in Paris. He hit her four times in the chest, and she lost some fingers on a hand, probably blocking the shots, but she survived. Her father-in-law killed himself that evening with one of the dueling pistols. She eventually did get her separation, and a New Orleans civil law judge ordered the restitution of her property, and she got her money back. She went on to build the Pontalba buildings on Jackson Square and died in 1874 at the age of 78. She built a lot of things in New Orleans. That's why she's very beloved in the city. Thanks for joining me down that rabbit hole. I thought you'd find that interesting. The area around the square has changed over the years. The streets were closed to traffic to allow for pedestrian traffic and paved with slate flagstone. An open-air artist colony now thrives here, with artists using the iron fence to display pictures. Musicians play in the streets, and horse-drawn carriages launch from here for tours of the city. 
The Spanish colonial Cabaldo is now a museum housing unique artifacts, historical documents, and revolving displays. The Presbyteries on the opposite side of the cathedral. It was designed in 1791 to match the Cabildo. It was originally called Casa Curiel, or Ecclesiastical House, and used as housing for the Capuchin monks, but went on to be used for commercial purposes until 1834. The building became a courthouse at that time, and eventually in 1911 became a museum, which it is today. Most of the other buildings have apartments on upper floors, shops and restaurants on the street level. St. Louis Cathedral still serves as a church. Clearly, these buildings have seen much history and much tragedy. New Orleans oozes with paranormal energy. Jackson Square seems to be a hub for it, with many of its flanking buildings claiming to house spirits. Let's take a walk around and see what we find. One of the first things you're going to notice is this restaurant that's on the corner. It's called Muriel's Restaurant, and it's one of the best restaurants in town. It sits at 801 Charter Street. Food offerings include Louisiana specialties like jambalaya, gumbo, and other southern fare. The building was refurbished to its former mid-1800s glory and opened in March of 2001 as Muriel's. The history of this property reaches back to 1718. A young French-Canadian named Claude Trebagnier moved to New Orleans and was awarded the lot where this building stands. He built himself a cottage, which soon became worth a lot of money when Jackson Square was laid out as the hub of the city. So you can imagine it was just this little knockabout lot. Probably got it for a real deal. And then it's just this cottage sitting on it. And it's like having the downtown get built up around your little itty bitty cottage. And all of a sudden it's like, wow, this is worth a lot of money. Because of its proximity to the port, there is a possibility that the cottage was eventually used for housing slaves before they were auctioned. Around 1745, the royal treasurer of the French Louisiana colonies named Jean-Baptiste Destran bought the property. He tore down the cottage and built himself a mansion. His son inherited the home in 1765, but eventually he lost the home when the family money ran out and it was sold at auction. Pierre-Philippe de Marigny purchased the residence in 1776 and used it as a home in the city when he visited from one of his plantations that is today known as Faubourg Marigny. On March 21, 1788, the Great New Orleans Fire broke out, and as I said, the blaze burned 856 of the 1,100 structures in the French Quarter, which included the buildings around Jackson Square and part of de Marigny's mansion was burnt. The Spanish quickly rebuilt, opting for bricks over wood. A little fun fact, the French had used cypress to build everything because it was the only wood termites didn't eat in New Orleans. De Marini sold the damaged home to Pierre-Antoine Lapardi Jourdain, who returned the mansion to its original grandeur. Unfortunately, Jourdain was a gambling man, and in 1814, he wagered his beloved home in a poker game and lost it. Now, I don't know if he had a wife or not, but boy, I would not want to go home to tell my wife, yeah, I thought I would go ahead and just put our house up for uh, a bet. The loss was too much for him to bear, and before moving out of the home, he hanged himself on the second floor. Julian Poydras, the president of the Louisiana State Senate and a director of the Louisiana Bank, moved into the house in 1823, but died a year later. 
His family stayed on in the mansion until 1881 and sold to Theodore Laveau. The Civil War had hit the Poydras family's interests hard, as was the case for many plantation owners, and much of the wealth had shifted from the French Quarter to the American sector in the Garden District in Uptown. Laveau kept the house for a decade and sold to Peter Lepari, who was an orange baron of sorts. He refurbished the building to its present look. It then housed a series of commercial businesses, most of which were saloons. Frank Taormina bought the building in 1916 and ran it as a pasta factory and grocery store and a restaurant called the Spaghetti Factory until 1974. And I thought it was very interesting. It was called that. Probably every city has one, but Denver definitely had a spaghetti factory. Used to love eating there when I was a kid. From 1974 to 2000, it was a chart house restaurant, and then it became Muriel's Jackson Square in 2001. During all of this time, the spirit of Jordan stayed with the building, and Muriel's has embraced their spirit, even setting up a seance lounge in the area where Jordan hanged himself. And they tell you all about him on their website. They're not shy about it. Employees claim that his specter does not make appearances, but instead is seen as a glimmer of sparkly light wandering around the lounge. He spends most of his time in the seance lounges on the second floor. Employees and patrons have witnessed objects moving on their own in the restaurant, and whichever ghost is hanging out in the courtyard bar, it's pretty mischievous and likes to throw glasses from behind the bar at a brick wall 12 feet across from the bar. I just said whichever ghost, because there are those that believe multiple ghosts are haunting this building, that it's not just Jordan. And some previous owners did die in the house. Paranormal investigations have been conducted over the years. Disembodied voices have been heard. Shadowy figures have been seen. In the seance lounge, distinct knocks on the brick wall have been heard as a type of communication. EVP of a female was captured as well. Murals not only makes it known that they have a ghost, they always keep a table reserved for Mr. Jordan and set it with bread and wine. All right, our next location is a very French name. So bear with me. I don't speak any French. I'm going to give it my best shot. Le Petit Théâtre du Ucar, which basically translates to the Little Theater of the Old Square. This is located at 616 St. Peter Street, just off Jackson Square. The theater has called this home since 1922. It doesn't look like a typical theater, but it fits in with the style of New Orleans with wrought iron around its second floor balcony, black shutters, and red brick. Le Petit was founded as an amateur theater group in 1916. They actually started in their homes, just putting on plays for the local community. As it grew in popularity, it was able to purchase the lot on the corner of St. Peter and Charter Streets. The original building on this lot was built by Don Joseph de Oru. E. Garbea, who was the head accountant of the Spanish Royal Finance Office and Army. Much of the structure was destroyed in the Great Fire. Three small buildings replaced the destroyed part. The theater removed them and incorporated the rest of the 1790s colonial building on the corner, which kept it with a Spanish colonial style. So part of the theater does go all the way back to the late 1700s. Through its nearly century of production, the theater has been known as one of the leading little theaters in the nation. And at one time, it held the title of the oldest continuously operating theater until 2012 because it had to close for refurbishment. So it kind of broke its record there. A little bit of a bummer. Facing financial trouble, the theater sold to New Orleans restaurateur Dickie Brennan. And he opened a Crayol restaurant in part of the space and retired the theater's debt. And it continues to put on productions to this day. As is the case with nearly every theater, as we've found, this one claims to have a spirit or two running around. 
There are claims that an actress named Carolyn, who worked in the theater in the 1930s, is here in spirit. She apparently took a tumble over the railing to her death to the courtyard below. She was wearing a white wedding gown as her costume, and so she's seen as a lady in white. There's another ghost nicknamed the Captain, who enjoys watching productions from his balcony seat. I'm not sure how he ended up here, but investigators claim he was sweet on an actress at the theater. So I don't know if he died somewhere else and decided to come back to the theater to look for his sweetheart, or if he, maybe he did die in the theater. I often have people ask me, what is the best tour to do in New Orleans? Obviously, I haven't done all of them, but I did do one with Haunted History Tours, and I loved it. It was the Vampire Tour. It was excellent. So I assume that their Haunted History Tours are pretty good, too. And one of the great things about this tour is it's one of the originals. It was founded by Kalila Smith, and he wrote a book that I picked up while I was in New Orleans, and I absolutely love it. And it's called New Orleans Ghosts, Voodoo, and Vampires, Journey into Darkness. And he covers a ton of stuff in this little book. It is great. He talks about a visit to the theater. He actually had his wedding there. He's a sensitive, and he felt as though there were several entities in the building, and EMF readings were very high. Psychics who visited the building told Smith that although there is sometimes the smell of burning flesh in the theater, none of the spirits seem to belong to fire victims. The spirits mainly seem to belong to actors who've returned. But I don't know that that's necessarily true. If we're getting a burning flesh smell, mm, sounds like some people are still hanging out. At least some kind of energy is still hanging out. Now we're going to head to Faulkner House Books. Faulkner House Books is located at 624 Pirates Alley, just off Jackson Square, behind the Cabildo and opposite St. Louis Cathedral's rear garden. The bookstore is owned by attorney Joseph J. DeSalvo Jr., and it's named for William Faulkner, the American author and Nobel Prize laureate. When he wrote his first novel, he was staying in this house in 1925. The house was built originally in 1840 by the widow of Jean-Baptiste Labranche. The site had previously been home to the French colonial prison before that, so you had a colonial prison here first, then this house got built on the site. Obviously, it was a place that people could stay as like a hotel back in the 1920s since William Faulkner had stayed here. And then, of course, today it's a bookstore. And most of the books that are in this store are used. So it's a great place to peruse if you're into old books and their smells. Speaking of smells, it's Faulkner's spirit that's said to haunt the building. And one of the things about that haunting is the smell of pipe smoke. He liked to smoke his pipe while he was writing here. And he sat at a desk while he was writing. And occasionally his full-bodied apparition has been seen sitting at a desk. Why he returned here, I don't know. Obviously, he went on to live a much longer life and write a lot more books. But maybe he just really was connected to New Orleans because that first novel of his was written there. Not sure. Or if it's just residual energy that has stayed behind. Our next stop is Pere Antoine's Alley. Antonio de Sedea was a Capuchin friar known to his flock as Pere Antoine. He was a controversial figure who was strong in his Catholic beliefs. He would help anyone in need, whether they were poor, prisoners, or slaves. And that's why he was controversial. In 1805, he was suspended over a dispute with the Vicar General of Louisiana, but he was so beloved by the people that they elected Pierre-Antoine their parish priest. The Vicar General's hands were tied by that vote, and so Pierre-Antoine was the priest there for those people until his death in 1829 at the age of 81. St. Anthony's Garden behind St. Louis Cathedral was named after his namesake saint, 
and was dedicated in Antoine's memory, and St. Anthony's Alley was renamed Pere Antoine Alley for the priest. And it is in this alley where his restless spirit is said to still roam. Visitors to the alley claim to see Pere Antoine's ghost in the early morning hours, clad in Capuchin black and sandals. Others have seen his full-bodied apparition in St. Louis Cathedral. The Haunted New Orleans Tours website reported, One recent account tells of a local woman who was rushing through Pere Antoine's alley on a rainy afternoon. Tottering on high heels, she tripped on one of the uneven alley flagstones and fell straight into the arms of a black-robed man with a white beard and surprised expression. He said nothing as he helped her gain her balance. When the woman turned to thank him, the man was gone. The woman further claimed that a sense of overwhelming peace came over her that afternoon, and she fully believed she encountered not a ghost, but a saint. Pretty interesting. Was it him? That's for you to decide. Obviously, one of the most well-known structures here is the St. Louis Cathedral. It's a beautiful building, a stunning piece of architecture. This, however, that we see today is not the original structure. This is actually the third version of the cathedral, which was originally called St. Louis Church, and was named in honor of the French king, Louis IX, the Saint King. It later became the cathedral and today is actually anointed as a basilica, but it's still referred to as a cathedral. The first structure here was simple and wooden and built in 1718. The next church was built from brick and stood from 1727 until 1788 when it was burned up in the Great Fire. The Spanish rebuilt much of what is seen today. Pope Pius declared it a cathedral in 1793. The central bell tower was added in 1819, and this was designed by architect Ben Henry Latrobe, who also designed the White House. Renovation was started in 1850 because a larger cathedral was needed. During that renovation, the central tower collapsed, causing the whole cathedral to be redone, losing much of the original Spanish architecture. However, the new design was solid and beautiful, creating a house of worship that has endured for over 150 years. St. Anthony's Garden is located behind the cathedral, and its original purpose was as a burial ground. The bones were reinterred in St. Louis Cemetery No. 1 on Basin Street. Or at least that's the story, but as we know, never seems that all the bones get moved, do they? So we might still have some bones hanging out here. And something else about this garden, although it was meant to be a beautiful, peaceful place, it eventually hosted illegal deadly duels. After the Civil War, the site became just a garden. Both the garden and the cathedral are said to be haunted. We already heard that Pere Antoine hangs out here in spirit form, while there's also Pere Dagobert hanging out here. His apparition has been seen walking with his head lowered down the aisles after worship. And a very interesting historical figure in New Orleans is Madame Lalaurie. And this was a place that she used to come to worship in the early 1800s, and her ghost has been supposedly seen in the cathedral. I find that kind of strange since she didn't die here. She died over in Paris, and I don't know why she would come back to the place that she worshipped, especially to a city where she probably would not be very welcome based on what she did at her mansion, but supposedly people have seen her here in spirit form. The Cabildo was once the seat of government, and the name translates to council. The 1762 Treaty of Fontainebleau passed Louisiana from the French to the Spanish, and this made the French angry since the trade had been an act of war during the French and Indian War. The French rebelled, and the Spanish sent General Don Alejandro Bloody O'Reilly to put an end to it. 
And yes, the Spanish sent a guy whose last name was O'Reilly. I'm not sure how that works, but okay. He brought 2,000 troops with him in 1769 and killed the first Frenchman he came across. So I guess he wanted to let them know he wasn't messing around. O'Reilly told the leaders of the uprising that he would like them to join him for a meal at the Cabildo and that he would work with them to settle the dispute. That wasn't what he had planned, though, in actuality. When they got there to eat, he handcuffed all the men and led them to the intersection of Esplanade Avenue and Frenchman Street, where he executed them all. And speaking of executions, the Cabildo hosted executions in its inner courtyard. Today, the Cabildo is part of the Louisiana State Museum, housing hundreds of early colonization and 19th century artifacts, including a bronze death mask of Napoleon Bonaparte. There's only two of them on the planet, and the Cabildo has one of them. Staff at the museum claim to have had strange experiences, particularly when working in the off hours. They've reported being touched or tapped on their shoulders, and finding no one behind them when they turn around. Strange sounds and shadows have also been reported. There are still jail cells in the rear of the Cabildo, and this is where most of the activity takes place. Visitors have reported seeing the spirit of a British soldier who was hanged here because he'd been a spy during the Battle of New Orleans. His spirit is seen wandering throughout the building. An anonymous person wrote on the Haunted Nation website, My ghost encounter there was actually in the front of the building on the second floor in the long foyer that runs the entire length of the building. I was walking through towards the room with Napoleon's death mask and felt a tug on my left shoulder. I assumed it was my daughter and slapped at the hand on my shoulder. Again, my shoulder was tugged hard and I slapped again and said, stop it, and turned to confront my daughter. There was no one in the entire front foyer. I was totally alone. Something made me speak out. I know you're there and it's okay. I then hurried off to find my family. I could not speak about it until we left the building. I felt followed for some time in the museum. I was a non-believer until that happened. And then finally, we have Pirate's Alley. Pirate's Alley is situated between St. Louis Cathedral and the Cabildo. Early in the day, the alley is quiet and seems to honor the posted signs that read, Quiet, Church Zone. At night, the old lampposts light the way, and the alley's filled with noise pouring out from Pirate's Alley Cafe and Absinthe House. This street was first laid out in the late 18th century and was called Rue Orleans was always meant to be an alleyway, so it was never meant to be a full-on street. It was originally unpaved, but cobblestones were added in 1830. So why is it called Pirate's Alley? Legend claims that the infamous pirate Jean Lafitte worked out of this alley. It was in this alley that they say Lafitte made a deal with Andrew Jackson, that if he helped get Lafitte's brother Pierre released, he would aid General Jackson in the fight against the British during the Battle of New Orleans. And whatever this deal was, General Jackson needed Lafitte and his pirates in order to help defeat the British during that Battle of New Orleans. So I have a feeling he made the deal. So since it's pretty improbable that there would be a pirate hanging out in this alley, why do people claim to see the apparition of Jean Lafitte in the alley? Well, maybe it's not even him. It could be another pirate by the name of Reginald Hicks. Hicks had been kidnapped as a boy by pirates and he grew up in their ways. He traveled with Lafitte to New Orleans and fell in love with a girl there named Marie-Angel Beauchamp, a beautiful French Creole girl. She got pregnant, and Hicks insisted that they get married. The only minister they knew was a German man doing time in the old parish prison. They begged the prison guard to let the minister marry them, and it was done by the Iron Gate along Pirate's Alley. 
Hicks was later killed in the war, and it's said that his spirit returned to the place of his marriage. People have claimed to hear wedding bells early in the morning and the sounds of ghostly laughter in the alley. Ghostly male singing is heard in the alley as well, and some believe it is Father Pere Dogobert visiting this alley too. So we might have one priest over in one alley and the other priest over in this alley. Jackson Square is a must-see for the visitor to New Orleans. Besides the beauty of the park, the architecture here is fabulous and full of history. And as I mentioned, there's a ton of museums down here, possibly full of ghosts. Are Jackson Square and its surrounding buildings haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, I hope you enjoyed that little trip on down to New Orleans. Definitely want to get back down there again and explore the cemeteries in this area once again and have myself another bowl of gumbo. Such good stuff there. Love to have you check out the website at historyghostbump.com. And if you would like to send me some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. I got an email from Kate. She said, hi, Diane, I'm a few weeks behind on the podcast, but just finished listening to episode 287 about the House of the Seven Gables. My son and I just visited the House of the Seven Gables this past summer, and I wanted to let you know that the employees there are specifically told not to confirm the ghost story sightings, which is why they always say, oh, no, none of that happening here. While taking the tour of the House of the Seven Gables, my son was completely immersed in the experience and asked lots of questions. And I did ask how old her son was, and he was nine when they went through the house. So I thought that was really cool that he was so interested in the history. When it came time to go upstairs, the tour was taken up that central hidden staircase you mentioned in your podcast. I get claustrophobic and asked if there was another way to go upstairs because it was not for me. They told me where to find the main staircase and how to navigate the upstairs floor plan to meet up with the group. My son wanted to do the hidden staircase, so I told him I'd meet him up there. I was rushing because I really didn't feel good about leaving him with a bunch of people I didn't know, and I missed a step. I was sure I was going to fall on my face and embarrass myself when I felt someone grab my arm and steady me. I turned to thank them, and no one was there. I was completely alone and honestly a little freaked out. I don't blame her. I mentioned it to our tour guide at the end of our visit when it was just he and I, hoping I could get him to admit that others had the same experience, but he firmly said, well, I can't tell you what experienced, but we don't have ghosts here. Who knows exactly what happened that day, but I'm glad that whoever it was was there to help me because it would have been pretty embarrassing if I'd fallen and gotten all banged up while there. And then she just went on to let me know how much she enjoys the podcast. So thank you so much for sharing that, Kate. And it's been so great hearing from you guys that have visited the House of the Seven Gables because it was really hard to find information on hauntings there because really they're not supposed to talk about it. So it was hard to find anything. And then I've heard from a couple of you who've actually been there and had your own experiences. And that is the best. I also had a really cool experience in regards to another episode. We featured the Fairy Plantation and the Virginia Witch, who was Grace Sherwood, and I was joined by a listener, Whitney Zahar. And I don't very often hear from actual locations when they hear a podcast about their particular location, but I heard from the Fairy Plantation. It was really cool. Their media director, Joshua, sent me an email and he said, I wanted to personally thank you for the amazing podcast you did on Fairy Plantation. I randomly came across it today while just checking Google search results on Fairy Plantation for research. Also, Whitney Zahar did an incredible job on her research. Your podcast has been one, if not the most informed podcast media about Grace Sherwood and Fairy Plantation we've heard. Sometimes we find articles, blogs, and talks about Grace Sherwood and Fairy Plantation, and we wonder where they got their information. Our special events coordinator recently had to write to Reader's Digest, informing them that Grace Sherwood was not killed and buried on our property. 
Thank you again for speaking about us to your audience and know that you and Whitney both have standing invitations to come out to any of our tours or special events on us. So I sent Joshua a thank you. And of course, I let Whitney know as well about that. And I look forward to visiting the Ferry Plantation. Hopefully in 2020, I'll be making my way up to Virginia. Also, don't forget, I host another podcast out there called the Death Box Podcast. I just put up episode number six featuring reanimation. So if you like Frankenstein, you might enjoy that episode. You can find it anywhere that podcasts are. Want to send out a congratulations to Brianne Sanford, who won our design contest. This year, I wanted a design featuring Mort, our gravekeeper, and the words, I dig graves, and really enjoyed her design. That will be available in the Emporium. You can get it on shirts or mugs. And our runner-up was Matthew Deegan. I really loved his design as well. That will definitely be showing up on some gear as well. And Mort is very excited that he now has more than just a voice to go with him. I'm going to dance a little jig. I have a few reviews from Apple Podcasts to share. First one is from Dyson Hand. Interesting mixture of history and spooky. Five stars. This is a great podcast where you get to hear the spooky activity occurring at a location and the history behind it, too. And then there's Melissa0296, one of my favorites, five stars. I so enjoy this podcast. It's also introduced me to my two other favorite podcasts, The Dirty Bits and Knock Once Free Us. And just in case you guys didn't know, The Dirty Bits Season 3 is getting ready to launch towards the end of February. Very excited for that. I'm changing my review to a five-star because I've listened to a few more episodes and think it deserves it. Diane and Denise were such fun and so positive. There's never a negative moment. Now that Diane does it on her own, I still really enjoy the interaction with fans, EPs, and more. I so enjoy learning more about other parts of the country and world through that lens. Well, thank you, Melissa. I greatly appreciate that. And MC Burr, great show, five stars. I'm a history teacher and I really enjoy the fresh approach of this podcast. I'm also a member of the Spectacular Crew. I love the show. Keep it up. Proud to be a supporter. I want to thank you all for tuning in to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We'd like to welcome back into the cemetery, Karistan Cooper, who will be getting a chest tomb. And then some newbies were welcoming into the cemetery. Ambar Mravitz, and I hope I didn't butcher your last name. You will be getting a garden tomb. And thank you for also giving a one-time donation before you signed up to be a regular supporter. Shell Reeves, you're going to be getting a marble tombstone. Kate Capanier, you're going to be getting a chest tomb. And Jillian Wallace, you'll be getting a grand mausoleum. And I also want to thank Gabe Finnegan Veers for upping your donation. You're now going to be moving underneath an obelisk tombstone. Thank you to all of you for your support. You are the ones who keep the show going. And now I'm going to turn it over to our gravekeeper extraordinaire, Mort, for some of his eulogies. Eulogies by Mort. Greg Sullivan was a master of names. On his snout... Worms play pinnacle games. He had lived in the state of the beehive, but now he is no longer alive. Dan Foytick was a master of paper and pen. He shared creepy stories of now and then. 
I spent time in the library that was wicked, and riding Victoria's lived for the afflicted. Paul Passano liked a good ghost story that incorporated chills and history. He had lived in the Buckeye State. Now his eternal fate he must await. Katie's Tianchou was a mom to a doxy. People said she had a lot of moxie. She had been a long-time sponsor, and was a big fan of the classic monster. Quinzilla had a unique artistic talent, and clearly a very diverse palette. I really liked her colorful hair. I would make mine pink on her dare. Chelsea Bausch had a sweet little girl. Baby girls always make my toes curl. She had supported HGB for over a year. And now for her I'll shed a tear. Dolly Ruther was not ruled by age. She had a knack for getting on stage. She was brave enough to enter a scary place. But now her life has come to the end of its race. Fan of the show? Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast catcher. We would greatly appreciate your review at iTunes as well to help the show grow. Thank you.